All right, folks, welcome to our first episode of the Cage Side Concussion Cast, OT, OT meaning both overtime, because we're going overtime, and off topic, because we're going to be a free-range conversation talking about... Lie, I spent like 30 minutes trying to find some kind of like STD they can pull from OT, but nothing came to mind. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to turn up your levels Orally there. transmitted. There we go. <laughs> oh, sweet Lord. <laughs> we're going to get in trouble for this. I'm not sure with who, but we have Cody Malte uh, from Elevate oh. MMA Academy, who is in the studio with us. Intern Chris is here. Trevor is also here. So we're going to continue our interview, and I wanted to talk to you about a few things that I had on my mind that we didn't get to cover in the show. First of all, there are those in the community that know you as Bubbly. And I'm curious about where you got that nickname and what you, what, how you feel about it. So let's see. Back in the day, um, I was a white belt, and my buddy who got me into jiu-jitsu, Jeremy Pack, was a Marine. And so to annoy him, they called him Soldier. So it was one, oh. of, those, it was one of those nicknames that just really drove a knife into him. And so since he was teaching me, my game started looking a lot like his. We both had very bad haircuts. And so when I walked into the gym, they just started calling me S2 for Soldier 2. So that was my first nickname. And then Dave Camarillo came in, and we were hanging out with Dave in the middle of the day, like before the seminar, and uh, just chilling on the mat. And Jason and Dave were swapping techniques, and I was just sitting there as a white belt trying to not get noticed. And uh, they were talking about using shoulder pressure to make someone's face, like, scrunch up. And at Team Rock, we call that ugly face. Like, give him some ugly face. And so Jason looked over at me, and he's like, you can tell S2 hasn't been here that long. That's why he's so handsome and bubbly. And Dave's like, he is bubbly. <laughs> and then Dave would only call me bubbly from then on. And then so from then on, that nickname stuck. But I always loved it because back then, I was like the young kid at the gym. I was 20 years old. I was just bouncing around, just happy to be there. And it, it fit me really well. And I think over time, as you know, I developed my own jiu-jitsu game, I feel like my jiu-jitsu is very happy and carefree, and so bubbly has always fit. And I never really kept it up for, like, fights and stuff just because I think nicknames are kind of overdone unless they fit really well. But generally speaking, I always thought it was a cool nickname. Yeah, and as Team Rock nicknames go, it's remarkably non-derisive. Yeah, exactly. And also— You lucked out as far as Team Rock nicknames, bro. I also had an entire instructional series set up that was going to be called Bubbly's Basics, uh, Bubbly's Butterfly— and then I think I had I had at least one other instructional already named. And this was when I was like a one-stripe white belt. So there's a lot of pre-planning going on on my part. <laughs> Dude, I, yeah, but if, you've, if you're going to be the black belt instructor, I guess maybe you start as the white belt instructor. And you're the black belt instructor now. So um, one of the things that, that like, technique-wise that you're famous for, like there are three things I think of when I think of you. I think of wrist locks, I think of guillotines, and I think of you leg-locking me a lot. <laughs> Which is really fun. It's just as much fun as it sounds. Um, and so how did you get started doing those techniques? What drew you to those? Do you think that has something to do with your personality or something to do with just something you were shown early on? So let's see. I'll, I'll go sequential with you. You said you said wrist locks first? Yeah. Okay, so wrist locks. One, I think when you talk about personality, I like doing stuff that people almost consider cheap and like annoyed and like it wasn't legitimate. So like when you wrist lock someone, they're almost just like a little bit frustrated and they give you that look like, come on, man, are we really doing this? And so I always thought that was hilarious. And then the other thing is when you go against a good wrist lock guy, and and I've been very lucky in my career to go against some people that when you go against them, you're legitimately terrified of where you put your hand because they will snap your wrist off. And I realized that once you start making somebody question where they're putting their hands it changes how they grapple a lot and they have to completely change their strategy. And so like Jeff, Jeff keeps asking me after each U.S. grappling, did you hit a wrist lock? I'm like, no, I never, I, I rarely get them in actual competition, 
but just the fact that I have that reputation, people are a little scared of him. And so they, they give me a little bit more respect. So if I have to hit him in the gym enough that I have that respect going into competitions, it always benefits me. Um, in terms of guillotines, I got out to Team Quest. Brian Harper was one of the jiu-jitsu coaches there. And he has the best arm in guillotine in the world by far. And, uh, and so I just, I just decided then there, I was like, he is beat. I'm watching him train with high, high ranked UFC fighters and embarrass them on the ground. And he's only using the arm and guillotine. And I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And so I just started going crazy, doing it all the time. And I never finished anyone and everybody would pass my guard. And that was like six to 12 months of my life of just getting trashed, trying to incorporate this move that I wasn't good at yet. And then I started catching people and then it just, you know, was a huge thing from there. And then the other thing was I was always obsessed with Marcelo and anything Marcelo did. Uh, I, if Marcelo did it, I wanted to do it. And so when he started Marcelo teening people, I started incorporating that one. And Brian's so good at his arm and guillotine, he doesn't have to use other ones. And Marcelo's so good at his Marcelo teen, I've rarely seen him use other guillotines as well. But I use everything. And so I've actually, since then, the most common ones I hit in competition aren't either of those. I kind of have my own little sneaky, sneaky stuff, which has never been shown in public. But if you check out the Cage Shot Concussion Cast webpage, I'm going to show my, my sneaky teens <laughs> on, on, the, on the internets. And then the last one was leg locks. It was the same thing. The first time my original instructor, Jeremy, blue belt, the only time I ever caught him, I caught him in a straight ankle lock. Like leg locks are such an equalizer and there's something you always have to be aware of. And they're also, they fit that category of people think they're a little bit cheap and kind of like shake their head when you hit them. So I, I like that kind of stuff. And then what really got me into it to the next level is I always believed, if, you, if you've ever read University of Jiu-Jitsu, AKA the greatest instructional book, that's ever been written and mandatory for any jiu-jitsu practitioner, in my opinion. If you read that book, Salo says, you know, white belt, you get beat up. Blue belt, you learn technique. Purple belt, you find your game. Brown belt, you perfect your game. And then black belt, you start again. So when I got my brown belt, I was like, okay, I've got my game. I do these guillotines. I do some other stuff. Now I just need to get, I need to make it perfect. And so I can hit anybody with it. And then I got out to Vegas and there was a little 135 pound fighter named Bendy Casimir, French guy who is one of my best friends to this day and the best training partner I've ever had. And he is the king of the knee bar. And he will knee bar anybody in the world. And he just started knee barring me nonstop. And I was like, but, I, but I'm good at guillotines. And he just knee barred me. And I'm like, well, but I know other jiu-jitsu and he'd knee bar me. And I was like, okay, well, there's something here. And I realized that in order to keep growing as a martial artist, I needed to expand that part of my jiu-jitsu game. I couldn't just be lazy and, and say that, oh, I was a brown belt. I needed to perfect what I had so far. So on that note, I started really working the leg lock game and Bendy was incredibly gracious with his time. And just, we would do our privates, I think three, four times a week for like six months doing knee bars. And, and then it just took off from there. And now I'm just in love with going after legs any chance I get. Yeah, it's really fun to get leg locked by you. Actually, it is really fun. I'll talk about that in a second. But uh, first of all, Trevor has to say goodbye. We're here in the uh, we're in the cavernous external studio, so yeah, you can hear the sounds. I didn't get any time to hop in and say anything because Jeff had some technical difficulties, and it took up a lot of my extra time. Um, One love, haze out. <laughs> see you, Trevor. Sorry, my right, nerd okay. powers have limits. Good to see you today. Hugs and kisses for everybody before I go. Trevor will be back for the next edition of the Director's Cut, yeah, a.k.a. the OT, a.k.a. the Standing Eight Count. Yeah. I wish I'd Gosh, thought of... man, like, I'm so mad you have that. Like, 
so that is up for grabs. That's still that's still Kate Shad concussion, concussion cast approved. And and, uh, and we, we, Cody's being very generous, not oh, only with his time. Yeah, bye, Trevor. Trevor, er, Co- Cody's not only being generous with his time; he's being generous by showing us uh, some uh, the, the, the the special Cody Armin guillotine tech or uh, Cody secret team techniques, which we'll go out and film at Elevate MMA sometime this week, hopefully. Um, so, in terms of competition, like I don't, I know that you just you're just opening the school, but you've already taken them to a tournament. Is it the kind of uh, is your competition plan for the school kind of a we're going to go to grappling tournaments and we're going to produce MMA fighters. Are we going to, are you going to do traditional Thai competitions as well? Have you, have you started to think about that as well? Yeah, I want to do everything. I mean, I believe in variation above all. And honestly, one of my most rewarding experiences coaching, teaching anything when I was in Iraq, which we talked about on on the first segment of the show and I was running a program. They actually, things were so chilled out at that point that we had boxing competitions. And so there was a boxing team on base and all they did was boxing. And so we had like our little MMA crew. And so I trained the guys up and we had seven debut fighters on a card and, and they went, we went five and two as a team. And that included me losing a a split decision. So the guys I was coaching went five and one in none of them had ever boxed before in their lives. And so that was amazing to me. So in terms of what I want the school to be kind of reflecting off that is I want to compete guys in boxing, kickboxing, tie fights. I want to do jujitsu competitions I want to do wrestling matches. You know, when they have AAU open wrestling tournaments, I want to go down to those. I want to do judo tournaments and all in the mindset. I want to, I want to create guys who can fight in any environment. And that means, you know, in my opinion, one of those environments is in the cage, you know, doing MMA fights. And I think, you know, fighting specifically is a very individual specific thing. It's, it's very intense and just the training alone takes a big commitment. So it's not for everybody. People who are recreational maybe can't make the time for that. But you can get a lot of that same experience and a lot of those same feelings, you know, with the volume turned down a little bit by just going to a grappling tournament. Yeah, most definitely. And so also, obviously, it seems like you have pretty clearly defined goals as a teacher. I'm wondering what your own competition goals are uh, for yourself as a martial artist going forward. So that's been a big evolution for me. And obviously, a lot of that's been tied in with, you know, the birth of my daughter this past year and, and everything else and just reevaluating where I want to take things. I never want to get away from competing. I want to keep testing myself in, in different environments. Um, I think as a fighter, my number one goal is I want my daughter to have conscious memories of me fighting. So for me, it's more of a longevity thing of, I want to keep taking fights, um, as, as long as, and to the point where she'll remember and any other children I have, I want them to have conscious memories of me fighting. So that's a really big thing for me. Um, in terms of where I want to take it, you know, I'd like to keep pushing myself to fight back up on that big stage again. I think it's reasonable that if I can get back to training more consistently and put together a win streak that I can fight on that USC level. I've trained with those guys. I I know where they're at and I know that I have a place there, but I think, you know, it all comes down to that alchemy of, of success of putting things together at the right time with the right training partners and the right coaches around you. So you know, that's still, I'm, I'm never going to give up on that goal. And I'm, I'm always going to, you know, kind of keep that one close to my heart. And in the meantime, I just want to keep pushing myself. And I think that's what, you know, getting back into competing locally has been is, you know, I talked, I talked to Jeff yesterday. I said, I wanted to go against Nakapon more than anybody and Nakapon put it on me. He foot swept me, foot swept me, foot swept did me. He, he, he put the foot sweep to me, me. And when, uh, 
and both times was up 2-0 and then ended up getting to dominant positions and, and finishing with chokes. And it's like, man, I've been thinking about that all night. I, I woke up this morning with some counter Nakapon game plans that I've been ruminating on. And so if Nakapon's listening to this overtime cut of this podcast outside of his state, Nakapon, I'm thinking about you, brother. I'm coming for you. <laughs> but I'm sure that Nakapon is listening. Hey, you know, and also hi, Nakapon. But, <laughs> but, but really, that's the that that's the beauty of the game. Whether you're talking about jujitsu competition or whether you're talking about mixed martial arts competition, in that you have a result that you don't like, and you evolve your own style and strategy in order to create the result that you do want. And that's what why it's important to have really good training partners, and why it's important to challenge yourself through competition because that'll just make you better. Yeah, and not just good training partners. You know, if and we'll keep we'll keep we'll just keep throwing his name out because he's on my mind all day right now. If if Nakapon didn't come down to that tournament, I wouldn't have gotten those beatings. And that's why, you know, as a scene, as a region, we have to keep putting it on the line and on all the guys who are at that level need to come out and, and put the beat down on everybody else to, to force us to raise our games up and, and to come up to that level. Most definitely. And one of the th- one of the reasons that I love training with you, aside from the fact that you're 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 an excellent instructor and an excellent uh, excellent grappler is that, uh, you know, I've learned a bunch of leg locks from you. And so at first you were leg locking me with the day one stuff. And then I would learn how to defend that. And you would hit me with your second and third line leg locks, which is all like, yes, I'm getting submitted over and over, but I'm also learning that stuff. And not only learning how to defend it, but not thinking, oh, this is a very cool thing that I can incorporate into my own style. And like, oh, I get to these positions too. Maybe I should be trying some of these things that Cody does. Yeah. And I look at it almost like you're building up immunity to something. You got to have exposures to build up that immunity and then you know if you train with the best leg lock guys in the world all day and someone goes for a leg lock you're just laughing at them and you know it's the same thing so if you train with the best boxers in the world and somebody's coming out and throwing hands with you you know you've seen that kind of speed you're used to it it's just like when you talk about you know pitchers in baseball if you haven't seen a 100 mile an hour fastball it's going to take you a couple pitches to get used to it but man if you see it all the time you can dial in on that sucker and it's the same thing you've got to see that level over and over and over to get used to it so in terms of you've been, have been had very good fortune in terms of training with some really top level people and you know you out here with Billy Dowie and Jason Colbreth which I want to talk about out uh, with Team Quest which I, and with Robert Drysdale. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about what you've gotten from each of those experiences and if there are any old school stories that you could share with the OT listeners. <laughs> so yeah, let's let's do the Forge Fitness ones last cuz we said we would get to the Forge Fitness funny stories. Um you know, Team Quest, right when I walked in, it was just a different environment because very wrestler-focused, um, great wrestling background, and immediately showed me some huge holes in my game. And uh, and just being around that level, I mean, Dan Henderson was there, but there was a lot of other top-level fighters coming in out of the gym all the time. And it's just inspiring to be around people, you know, pursuing goals that are that big and getting ready for fights. And you see how pro camps are run. And you also realize that these people aren't superheroes, you know, training in North Carolina and training in California aren't different for anybody who thinks that, you know, these guys put their pants on both legs at a time. It's not true. Everybody's doing things the same. And so you start realizing that it's okay. I can give myself permission to compete on this level. I can give myself permission to beat these people, which you need to have going into those matches. And I think just the toughness of the team quest team and, and that real grinder philosophy, like I really pride myself on my wall work in the cage and I think that's one of my strengths and I got that there and I really pride myself on the fact that you're not gonna out tough me and I think that was something we really built there in Team Quest in those rooms and you know 
you come in Monday and it's eight five minute rounds of sparring deathmatch Mondays and I remember Joe Warren when Joe Warren first got on the scene and he was coming off a, a Greco world championship and getting ready for some MMA fights that guy beat me worse than I've ever been beat in my life and Joe Warren's like 132 pounds soaking wet and he just beat me like a drum and you know coming back from some of those you know realizing that oh you take that beating and wow I was still good to train that night it was no problem so it's like you realize you can make it through those moments and you're just not scared to stick your head in there the next time in terms of you know when I went up to Marcelo's I think the the joy that they put into their training was something that really um struck me they they really have a lot of fun they love each other at that team and it's very obvious that they're just they're just in there having a good time and because they have so much joy and passion for what they're doing good results come as a result and so i think if you don't have all that passion you're missing an ingredient and then when i went out to drysdale's you know every time i've trained with rob and i had trained with them a few times before moving out there and i was just struck by how aligned our philosophies were and that's what led to me moving to las vegas is he believes that whatever works is good and he never turns his back on any technique and if someone comes in and is making something work that he doesn't think should work he's going to figure it out and he's one of the greatest generalists i've ever seen in jiu-jitsu in that he understands every technique and his strategy is not to impose his strength on you it's to take you where you're weak and drown you and so seeing how he mentally approached the game and then the amount of hard work he expected out of us in return he just constantly preaches be on the mat one extra session a week do one extra burnout set of grip exercises after training you know rob rob will sit there and tell us over and over overtraining is a myth overtraining is a myth because he wants us to go hard, hard, hard to the point where when we would be training for big competitions as a team, he would burn us out and then he would pull the plug six days before a competition. You wouldn't train, which is crazy. Most schools don't follow that philosophy. Rob's the opposite. He puts you pedal to the metal and then you have six days off to mentally reset. And by the time you show up to the competition, you're chomping at the bit to go. And so I think his philosophy on competition, on, on how to approach the art, affected me so much. And it is so much about how I want to, you know, push the school when I have my own school and what direction we want to go in. You know, this is the first I've heard of that strategy, but it makes perfect sense to me. And maybe it's because I'm an older guy, but like some of the best performances I've had is when I've had a layoff of four to seven days and it's just you you're little you're nicked up and you heal you're excited instead of being burned out uh, you, you know and and you're fired up to get on the mat i also like i believe in visualization a lot and so even just doing that before before a tournament it seems to help me and i think here, here's a huge misconception so uh, one question we, we didn't get to that's always that's always on the the jeff question reel is like what's the most common mistake you see practitioners making there's different seasons of your training like there's different seasons of your life there's a time to work hard and get in that extra sparring session and there's a time to change things up and when you see a lot of guys who are have been around they're a little bit long in the tooth martial arts wise and they've been around a long time they've figured out how to train less and get the same benefit new guys can't keep that schedule up as a new guy you got to take your beatings and you got to train more and 
mat time does cure all. Like you're going to just keep getting better by being on the mats one way or the other. And as you get older, you need to give that up and you need to do more targeted training. You need to do more figuring out a hole in your game, coming up with a plan and a technique that fills that and then adding that technique into your repertoire in a very specific targeted way. And if you're not doing that, you're literally just going to start repeating the same patterns over and over. You're sparring, but you're sparring to win rounds against guys who have less experience than you. You're not adding new stuff to your game. You're not becoming better. And so I think being very honest with yourself about where you're at and what you need. And if you can't be honest with yourself, you need to have a coach that you trust enough to do that. And I think it's something that not all coaches grasp yet because it hasn't been incorporated across the board. But the fact that you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. The person who's been training a year has to train differently than the person who's been training 10 years. And there has to be a very thought-out reason for what you're doing. And so you know, this past year of my life, because of job stuff and because of baby stuff, I've trained less than I have in any other year since I started. And I keep waiting. I keep training with guys that have been training. You know, I, I went back out to Vegas to receive my black belt in August. And I didn't know I was going to get it at the time, but I just went out to train. And all these guys, I'd been at home taking care of a baby, sleeping four hours a night and, and working. And these guys are training two, three times a day. Absolute animals, competition scene. And I roll with them and I'm going even with them the same way I went even with them before. And I'm like, no, they're, they're a year better than me. And it's not really true because my mind has been growing over this year. I've been learning so much and watching so much video and studying and just thinking about jujitsu. And I love jujitsu so much that no one's you know passing me by. And it, it shocked me. And everybody I train with, I keep waiting for all these guys who are training all the time to just crush me. And I'm like, well, if I'm not training and staying even with these guys who are training all the time, there's something wrong in their training. And I think this goes across the board that if you're not just like crushing past people, then you know, you're not making the progress. It's, it goes back, there's a quote somewhere, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but there's two different artisans. One has 20 years of experience and the other one has one year of experience 20 times. And just that if you're, if you're doing that same year over and over and not learning and growing, all the mat time in the world can't save you. I think that's really important, a really important insight that there are seasons of your training and, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. And so I want to talk about a particular time and a particular place, which is your time out here in North Carolina at Forge Fitness with, with Billy and Jason. And what did you get out of that and what kind of experiences did you have with those guys? So, you know, in terms of what I got from it, I think at that time, you know, Forge Fitness Team Rock was more of a very small, it was a smaller team and it was still very much part of that roots of a bunch of guys in Hillsborough trying to figure out jujitsu and Billy and Jason were brown belts and there was a lot of guys fighting out of the gym, a lot of tough guys and, and training was very intense. And I think the biggest thing I took away from it was just the base and the fundamentals in terms of there's no question in my mind that when it comes to fundamental movements and stuff, that, that foundation will always be there because it was laid correctly at the beginning. And so I'm always grateful for that and everything else. And also just the, the passion and the love of the sport because Jason and Billy are so passionate to this day about MMA, about jiu-jitsu, about martial arts, and about helping people that I think that was a big part of what lit the spark in me back then as a 20-year-old. And I was like, man, this is what I want my life to be about. I see the way 
students gravitate towards Billy and Jason and I see the benefits that they get in their life outside of the gym. And I'm like, I want to be a part of this in some way, shape or form. I want to contribute to this community and I want to get myself to the point where I have something to give back. And, and so I think that was a huge thing I got then. They, they lit the spark that's carried me through all my training and will continue for a long time because that fire is definitely never going to go out. But in terms of, I promise, I promise some funny stories about Jason and Billy getting me in trouble. So the first one was with Brandon Garner and we came into the gym and Brandon and I were like rolling and we're rolling light and Brandon was being pretty chill and and Billy looked over at Brandon and was like, hey, Brandon, you know, Bubby was saying that your Kimura defense is just straight up overrated. And I, I told him, I told him, I thought your jiu-jitsu was good, Brandon, but man, he just kept saying like, no, Brandon can't defend this and he can't defend that. And his jiu-jitsu is just not that great. Like, yeah, he can strike, but maybe his jiu-jitsu is not that good. And at the time I was very impressionable. I always went along with whatever Billy and Jason said. And so Brandon's like, well, you're not denying it. So I'm going to assume it's true. (laughs) And I looked at Brandon and I was like, well, this is a bit. So I'm going to play along with this bit. And I was like, well, why would I deny it? And Brandon was like, okay. And so he took my back and I ducked my chin a little bit to prevent the choke. And he threw like three or four solid hooks, not like punching me in the face, but like punching into my neck to dig my chin up. And I left that day. I could barely swallow food. And I was like bruised all over. And Brandon promised me, he's like, man, you talk too much junk. You're going to have to learn a lesson. And so Brandon was busy and our training schedules didn't line up. So we got back on the mat like five weeks later. I'd kind of forgotten all about this. And Brandon hadn't. And (laughs) so Brandon threw me in a triangle and I tapped. And Brandon kept the triangle on. I tapped again, and, and then I went to sleep. And then I woke up, and Brandon had a talk with me about <laughs> learning my manners and, and respecting those who have gone before me. <laughs> and it was good. But, I mean, I never bear any ill will towards Brandon because, man, that guy's helped me so much, and he's such a pioneer in this area. And, honestly, I would – if you gave me fight odds, Brandon versus any 135-er, I couldn't ever bring myself to bet against Brandon. And Brandon is still spoken of in legendary hushed tones by everybody that trained with him back then. <laughs> but then the other one that happened, there was a uh, tank, Jason Spalick, who, who now is a black belt in Colorado. So tank was a pretty high up there competitor when he's a purple belt and brown belt. And uh, he had just finished up the pans. He'd gotten second at the pans, big tournament and had lost by triangle armbar. And so Jason and Billy pulled me aside before Tank got there, and they were like, all right, man, this is what happened. He lost my triangle arm bar, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, I need you to come in. Wait, let us get in the office. We're going to sit down with him for like five minutes and then come in and just start junk talking him. I was like, all right, I got this. I got this, guys. <laughs> so I walked in, blue belt, and I was just like, oh, hey, Tank, what's up? Nice to meet you. Yeah, you know, Jason and Billy say all this good stuff about you. The only thing they told me is you're probably going to need some help with like your triangle armbar defense. I can, I can help you with that. And he just looked at me with like a cold dead stare. And I was like, tank, I'm just, I'm just playing. And I went on with the conversation, assuming that he got that that was a joke that I had been put up to by Jason and Billy. And so afterwards tanks like, Hey man, before class, do you want to train a little bit? And I was like, 
heck yeah, this guy, you know, high-level purple belt. I don't get to train with these guys every day. You know, back then, being a high-level purple belt in North Carolina was like crazy. Like you were going to get the whole tournament stopped for your match type of stuff. And so Tank comes out there and man, he just like stunned on me over and over hitting like these crazy because Tank used to be, I think like a B-boy and he, he has all this crazy athleticism and stuff. And so he was hitting these crazy spins into triangle arm locks over and over and over. And I didn't even put it together at the time. He was just crushing me with the same move over and over. I was like, this is kind of random. And then after the roll finished, he was like, oh, so I guess I probably don't have as much to learn about triangle arm locks as you thought. I was like, man, this, and I think at that moment I made that note to self about like, I realized that Jason and Billy like putting me up to stuff that entertains them, but maybe I shouldn't follow through on it a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> Those are words to live by. And I love the old school story. So I think that's a really good, uh, a really good spot to end our first OT on Cody. Thanks so much for being our guest today. And thanks for being the first, uh, the first ever OT slash standing eight count guest on the concussion cast. Awesome. Thank you so much. And once again, just closing out, if you don't have anything to do on February 21st, and even if you do, really, just cancel those plans. Hip Hop Chess Federation, incredible organization. We're going to have an incredibly fun event that's also going to feature a lot of people from the scene there grappling, having some fun. And it'll just be a good, a good day of community in terms of bringing together a lot of gyms and a lot of people for a great cause. So please come on out. It's going to be at Elevate MMA Academy, and the address is 2945 South Miami Boulevard, Suite 113. And you can check us out online at elevatemmaacademy.com. And we'll put all this info on our Facebook page as well. We will be there. You should be there. If you have to work, get the day off. If you're in jail, break out. I am Jeff Shaw, and I will see you all on February 21st. Thanks again for listening, everybody.